Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. The following podcast contains explicit language and content that may not be suitable for all listeners. We arrived on Long Island three weeks ago to launch our search for answers in the Long Island serial killer case. We're trying to understand why, after 10 years, this case remains unsolved. It's incumbent on all of us to stay hyper-vigilant, to keep asking these questions, to make sure not another 10 years pass with no answers. We'll do our part. We're not stopping. Those were my words from March 10th, 2021 on this podcast. A year later, law enforcement would identify their main suspect. And Friday, July 14th, 2023, just a few days ago, they took him into custody and arraigned him for the murders of three of the four Gilgo Beach killings. Who is Rex Hewerman, the man that police allege is the Long Island serial killer? How did law enforcement zero in on him? How has this new development impacted the victims? This and more on this special episode of Unraveled. From ID and Joke Productions, this is Unraveled. Long Island Serial Killer. Friday, July 14th, 2023 was a partly cloudy, balmy day on Long Island and thunderstorms and showers loomed in the air. In hindsight, a perfect foreboding for the headlines that would hit our screens that very morning. I happened to be in New York City when my phone dinged and alerted me to the news about to break. The alleged Long Island serial killer was in custody. This case has consumed much of my life over the past eight years. And so my plans were dropped, all things were canceled, a car was rented, and I headed out to Long Island. They're coming. Everybody ready? Put your phones off. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you all for coming. I'm standing here with my law enforcement partners in the Gilgo Task Force to announce the indictment of defendant Rex Andrew Hearman, 59 years of age. He's been arrested by the Suffolk County Police Department's homicide detectives, and he's been indicted in a grand jury presentation by the, the Suffolk County District Attorney's Office for the murders of Melissa Bartholomew, Megan Waterman, and Amber Costello. The investigation of Maureen Brainerd Barnes is ongoing. These young women went missing between July of 2007 and September of 2010. They were found in December of 2010 by the Suffolk County Police Department, and then there was nothing, absolutely nothing. For the next 13 years, their cases went unsolved. 
until today. That was current Suffolk County District Attorney Ray Tierney at Friday's press conference. Melissa, Megan, Amber, and Maureen are all known as the Gilgo Four. Of all the victims associated with the Long Island serial killer case, they have the most in common with one another. We know that in life, Melissa, Megan, Amber, and Maureen all had very similar body types. They were just about five feet tall and they were very petite. They were white. And we know that they all advertised sex work on Craigslist. We also know they were contacted via phone and they all went missing in the summer months. Much was previously made of the burlap their bodies were supposedly found wrapped in. During previous episodes of this podcast, we talked about the fact that in our interviews with law enforcement, there seemed to be some hesitancy to confirm this burlap information. Now we know why. Here's Ray Tierney again. The other thing I think that's been talked about in the media was they were bound by burlap. That has taken a life of its own in the media, and the burlap has been described or thought to be uh, the burlap that's used at a nursery. That's not the burlap that was used. In this case, it was camouflage burlap used for duck blinds, so hunting. Obviously, it was used to hide, purposely hide the bodies. We also learned that suspect DNA was found with the bodies, which was a first. Specifically, there was a hair recovered from Maureen Brainerd Barnes from a belt buckle that was around her legs. With regard to Megan Waterman, there were three hairs recovered, one from around her head area, one from around her leg area in the burlap, and then there was one caught in between the tape. Amber Costello also had a hair a significant hair that was recovered. But the crime scene, because it w- was out there for so long and because uh, it was exposed to the elements, uh, those hairs were degraded, so you couldn't use traditional DNA analysis on it. You would have to wait and use mitochondrial DNA. And back in 2010, the technology wasn't there for mitochondrial DNA. So the investigation proceeded, but also technology proceeded as well. The truth very well may be that police never disclosed that suspect DNA was present because they weren't even sure what they could do with it. But forensic science in the field of DNA has grown leaps and bounds and continues to evolve. To help make more sense of the statements made by Ray Tierney, I called Cynthia Kale, a forensic DNA expert with DNA Mavens. So we know that investigative genetic genealogy has been responsible for a lot of headline-grabbing captures not the least of which was the Golden State Killer. But in that case and many others, there were rather decent samples of suspect DNA. So could you talk about the obstacles in getting DNA for a genetic genealogy match from just maybe a few hairs that were exposed to the elements and then slowly degraded over many years? Yeah, so with like a hair sample, typically if we want to do like a normal, you know, forensic DNA analysis where we're looking at the nuclear DNA, we're wanting like the root of the hair. So if we're dealing with something that's just the shaft of the hair, trying to get nuclear DNA out of that is very difficult. Just one, because the cell is already dead in the hair. But with the, the mitochondrial DNA, the way it's structured, whereas like nuclear DNA is kind of linear and it's very susceptible to just the enzymes that are present in the body and the cells, and all the environmental factors that can break down DNA, the way the mitochondrial DNA is structured is in a circle. It's kind of self-contained, and that structure protects it from those elements, so they tend to last longer than the nuclear DNA. With the nuclear DNA, you only have two copies per cell. With the mitochondrial DNA, there's upwards of thousands of mitochondria per cell. There's going to be a lot more mitochondrial DNA available than the nuclear DNA. The fact that mitochondrial DNA is stronger in a sense is what saved us here. Maureen Brainerd Barnes disappeared in 2007 and wasn't found until 2010. No wonder the nuclear DNA didn't survive. I also learned that mitochondrial DNA speaks to our maternal lineages and doesn't get passed on by men. This makes searching for matches in a predominantly male criminal database pretty difficult. 
why is it important to get family members surreptitious samples as well? They may be able to do uh, familiar matching that way, you know, either um, by the Y chromosome or the mitochondrial um, chromosome. So this could help explain why investigators got abandonment samples, not just from the suspect himself, but other family members as well, perhaps sisters, nieces, or even his mother. And something that's been nagging me, why would it take this long for us to use mitochondrial DNA to identify a suspect? Is this really something that's brand new? What could have been a reason that this DNA evidence wasn't utilized until 13 years later? That I can't speak to. I know if it's just the shaft, that nuclear DNA is probably not the best option. It would probably be the mitochondrial DNA would be the best option and might have to do with backlogs. Other than that, I, I really don't know what would have caused that kind of a big gap in time. We'll come back to the question of why it took this long. There was more new evidence talked about at the press conference. In addition to the suspect DNA, the other big evidence reveal was the cell phone data. As listeners of this podcast know, I talked with the then district attorney, Tim Sini, a few years ago, and he filled us in on how they were using cell phone data dumps to identify a possible suspect. Here is Ray Tierney at the press conference. One thing that became immediately apparent was at the time of each of the murders, the defendant, Herman, he got a cell phone, a burner phone, which is prepaid and anonymous. And for each of the murders, he got an individual burner phone and he used that to communicate with the victims. Then shortly after the death of the victims, he then would get rid of the burner phone. Right away in December of 2012, FBI immediately began looking at that cell site data. They compared the victims' phones with the burner phones, and they immediately honed in on some similarities, specifically in the Massapequa Park area. And they looked at an area of a confluence of four cell towers, and they realized that this had significance because the perpetrator of these crimes was probably located within this area at or around the times of the murderer. And that was mapped out. That was called the box, and it was an area in Massapequa Park. The FBI also managed to do that for an area in midtown Manhattan. Let's talk Massapequa for a second. Massapequa Park is on the south shore of Long Island in Nassau County. It's about a 25-minute ride to Gilgo Beach in Suffolk County, which is where Melissa, Megan, Amber, and Maureen were each found. It's a predominantly white community with a majority Italian, Irish, and German ancestry. At 17,000 residents, it's a quaint, all-American town where summers are filled with park festivals and parades. And that is where law enforcement found their suspect, Rex Huerman. But before DNA and cell phone data confirmed to law enforcement that Rex Huerman should in fact be their prime suspect, the task force searched, of all things, a database. And victim Amberlyn Costello would be the key. Amber Costello, the day before her disappearance on September 1st, 2010, she met with an, an individual for the purposes of having him pay her money for her services. But she involved herself in a ruse where once the individual gave her money, other individuals came into the, the house, pretended to be a significant others, confronted the individual with the purpose of, of making that individual uncomfortable, having him leave without retrieving his money. And that's exactly what happened. That individual was identified as, as a person who was between 6'4 and 6'6, a large man, thickly built, not necessarily overly muscular, but just a naturally big person with glasses, white and dark hair. Also of significance was the fact that he was driving a dark colored or black first-generation uh, Chevrolet Avalanche with a very unique feature that was between the, the, it was a pickup truck, so it was between the cab and the bed, and that was identified. Again, that was back in 2010, but it wasn't until uh, March of 2022 that that database was searched by the, the task force, and this individual was identified. That individual was uh, Rex Hurman, the defendant. Uh, and right away, there were some commonalities that came right to the fore. Rex Yerman, 6'4", a large person, not necessarily uh, muscular, a very physically large person. 
He has glasses. He has the dark hair. And also, of particular note, he owned, at the time, that first-generation Chevy Avalanche. I've got lots of questions. Mainly, why did it take so many years for a task force and an investigator to look through a database and find that specific car with a driver that matches this description? Perhaps the fact that the investigation was slow-rolled by James Burke, as detailed in previous episodes of this podcast, or perhaps these are just newer databases. That said, it's a remarkable description. But once they had their main suspect, law enforcement realized he not only lived in the box around Massapequa Park that the FBI had identified, he also worked in the FBI's second box in Midtown Manhattan. It's clear the investigation is far from over. And there were some other pieces of information that were shared. The suspect's family was out of the state during the last three disappearances and murders of the Gilgo Four. Law enforcement was able to recover the very same car that was used in the Amberlin Costello incident in South Carolina. It's currently undergoing deep forensic testing. Through subpoenas and warrants, law enforcement learned the suspect was using many fictitious email addresses and his Google searches included torture porn and also showed that he kept close eyes and ears on the Long Island serial killer investigation. And beyond that, he tracked the families of his victims. In that, is the really chilling part, isn't it? The Long Island serial killer was known to taunt the families of his victims. For this suspect to have been tracking his victims' families, trying to locate them, and if he is proven to be the killer, this is some next-level psychopathic behavior. Coming up, I talk with Megan Waterman's sister about what this news has meant for her and what she thinks about possibly being stalked online by her sister's alleged killer. And still to come, more insight into the suspect himself, Rex Huerman. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Janice from Warner Brothers Discovery. Have you ever heard the expression, perfect is the enemy of good? I think about that a lot, especially when it comes to my body and health, because perfect does not exist. It's a total trap. Noom isn't into this perfection thing either. Its unique approach is tailored to each person's psychology and biology. From coaching to recipes, Noom's app provides personalized information to help you on your journey, no one else's journey. I also think it's great that Noom doesn't restrict what you can eat and it doesn't shame you for treating yourself. And treat yourself, you should. What's more, Noom's approach is grounded in science. They've even published more than 30 peer-reviewed scientific articles about how they work. To date, Noom has helped more than 5.2 million people lose weight by helping them build new habits for a healthier lifestyle. So why not give it a try? Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. When the news broke yesterday, my thoughts immediately went to the families of the victims. 
I'm not gonna lie, I did get very emotional. These individuals have waited many years for justice to be served and it's many years too long. Just a few months ago, before we knew anything of an imminent arrest, I spoke with Amanda, who's one of Megan Waterman's sisters. And here's a bit of our conversation. My first question was, of course, about Megan. Who was she? She was a good person. A very bubbly, smile could light up a room. She had amazing energy. Her energy was just so magnetic and so, so full. It was just, it was great to be around her. I love being around her. What kind of things did you guys do together? Literally everything. Took the kids to the park. Before we had our kids, I went to her grandparents a lot and stayed there. We'd chill, watch movies. We had the same interests and in everything, so that, that was good. We watched Save the Last Dance, I don't know how many times. Nails, makeup, hair. Our goal was to own a salon when we got older. We were going to go to hair school, own a salon. These women are not just victims, names, and dates on a timeline. They were human beings who lived full lives. They had families, they had interests, and they had dreams. I asked how Megan ended up in sex work. I think she was brainwashed by her pimp. And I think maybe like once she got in and realized how good the money was, it was hard to get out. It's an eerily familiar victim story. These girls who live full lives, who find themselves in a bad relationship or in desperate need of money. Amanda and I talked a lot about her relationship with Megan in those initial days of terrible thoughts that can lead to self-medicating. And then the long years of no answers that can lead you to lose hope. I assumed that this was gonna be solved. I did not think that this was gonna go even a year. You have that many bodies and no evidence, no nothing. These girls just walked off the face of the earth. That's literally what it seems like. And they have nothing. It is unbelievable. And so with the recent arrest, I reached back out to Amanda to see how she was doing, how she was feeling. And here's the call I had with her just 24 hours after the news broke. Amanda? Hi. Hi. How do you feel? I'm happy, and I just hope, I hope it's him. I tried to prepare myself for this, and even preparing myself did not prepare the amount of emotions that came through me yesterday. I really felt sick yesterday, like, sick to my stomach. I'm still processing it, to be honest with you. When you first heard about this Rex guy, did you, like, Google him? Like, what did you think when you saw him? Oh, yeah, yeah, I Googled him, and I... Literally, my first thought of him was like, wow, he is literally a monster. Like, he is huge. You watched the whole press conference? Yeah, I did. What was the most surprising thing to you that you learned? That it was him, yes. That he was searching up the victim's families. That was scary. My dad was right. What was your dad right about? Uh, just staying out of the spotlight. I laughed it off, and then come to find out he was right. So when my father was like, Amanda, you need to stay out of the media. You need to stay off social media. You need to not have your face on anything to do with your sister because we don't know what he's capable of and if he's going to come for their family. I was like, in a way, thinking like, Dad, that's crazy. But it, it wasn't. It, it was reality. I just felt like I could not believe yesterday. Do you think it's disbelief? Do you think it's like relief like is it hard to believe that this is happening because you've been in pain for so long yeah and it took so long i started to lose hope because it took so long and right as i was starting to lose it like they find i'm just like what the hell like this is crazy this is surreal if you've convicted and you have an opportunity to like give a victim impact statement what kind of things would you want to say to them oh my god I have so many questions. I know I'll probably never get the answers to any of them. He clearly has no remorse. He's doing it again, and he's searching it and basically getting off on all this searching shit he's doing. I hope this piece of shit gets locked away. I hope he's tortured for the rest of his life, every single day. I will never forgive him. I would love to see him fuck. 
how have things changed for you in the last 48 hours? Definitely brought back a lot of a lot of painful moments and stuff. It, it is so hard to process. I mean, I'm relieved that he is caught. I'm relieved that that's one less monster on the street. He chose those girls. He yeah, had no right. He's not God. He, he literally acted like he was God and chose their fate. And those girls deserve justice. Those girls deserve justice. It's a simple statement, but one that was the driving force for so many for so long. John Wright represents the family of Shannon Gilbert, the young woman who went missing in Oak Beach. If you're not familiar with her or Oak Beach, please do listen to our earlier episodes. John Ray is one of the loudest voices in this fight for justice, and I asked him his thoughts on the recent arrest. How are you? Good, how are you? I mean, exciting and frustrating and, and even depressing, you know, so. Depending on how you look at it. Yeah, yeah. Bittersweet victory. That's a place because we got the monster. He's off the street. One of them anyway. And they've solved four cases. As I was listening to Ray go through all those details. John is referring to the district attorney, Ray Tierney. And one of the thoughts I'm having is, wait a minute, they had all this stuff. And technology wasn't in its infancy 10 years ago, 12 years ago, all the way up until 2022. It was odd. You know, the darker side of the coin, that's why I say it's bittersweet, the coin of this event, is that it begs the question, where have you been for 12 years? Ray gets in, in forms a task force, and two months later, less than two months later, they already have a major lead in the case. How could that happen? And then all the evidence and leads are all coming together in less than a year. They all fall into place. Of course, that's wonderful, but it suggests that if it was that speedy a resolution, it suggests that it could have been done before and wasn't. And the question becomes, why wasn't it? John Ray's question is fair. It's a confirmation of what we've been talking about on this podcast specifically. And while this arrest is certainly a triumph, it is also in a way another indictment on the James Burke legacy. If he hadn't shut the FBI out of the Lisk investigation, how much sooner could we have had a suspect in custody? I asked him if he had any thoughts on Rex Yurman, the suspect. This guy, in my view, has two types of trophies. And we know serial killers often like trophies. In his case, I would suggest so far what appears is that he has physical trophies, which are obviously the dead. And so he sits in his home in Massapequa and conceives it. Maybe he drives by it and gets off on it. He said to Bartholomew's sister, you know, I'm driving by, looking at them rot, that sort of thing, or I'm, near, I'm here, I'm nearby watching her rot. So those are trophies, physical trophies. But for him, unlike the others that I've seen, he has metaphysical trophies. And the metaphysical trophies is his zealous collection of histories and information regarding the relatives and friends of the victims. Creepy. Creepy. Do we know what else he was doing in terms of collecting information on the victims' families? He was very zealously collecting this information. And we know he's a taunter. That's part of his delight. You know, he enriches his experience with killing them, then tracing down all of these tentacles of family and intimidating them in turn. Somehow it gives him this, you know, macabre delight. This idea that the suspect stalked the victim's families is perhaps the most disturbing insight that was revealed at the press conference. But it also ties into whether or not John thinks this suspect is solely responsible for all of the bodies along Ocean Parkway, or if he thinks there are more killers. That is not a pattern you see connected to any of the other girls. What did he do to find out about Jessica Taylor after he killed her, if he killed her? Do we know? Do we, we don't have any evidence of that. I'm so curious to know how you think where he falls in with possibly other killers. He's perfectly capable of having done the others in that not only when you look at his size, huge guy, right? The modus operandi being different. Is it therefore possible that a killer can change his modus operandi? And the obvious answer is yes. And they do. And they do. Please. The more intelligent they are, the more likely they do. But he also was a, a uh, hunter. 
with a license and a gun. Many guns. Yeah, many guns. So, you know, a big guy like that who's a hunter, they know how to take the game and, and strip it and dress it. So he's perfectly capable of having dismembered some of these people. It's certainly possible that it could be one, but I understand the hesitation because a lot of it is so different. The guy could just randomly likes to kill and, and he enjoys it. But you do have a pattern theory that people, they act in patterns. And this guy certainly, his pattern as to the four is very discreet and distinct yeah. from all the others. He not only wraps all four of them up, but he tapes their heads, which we didn't know. Okay, now we do. He tapes their, their ankles, uh, wrists, like a mummy, and then he carries them to their resting place and lays them in such a way that they're almost geometrical. 500 feet apart. Yeah. Right. You know, and that's a pattern. But that pattern doesn't exist with anybody else. So that tells me that maybe they're, maybe they're not connected. Maybe there's somebody else who did those. Based on what you've learned so far and based on the variables in Shannon's case, do you think there's any chance Rex killed Shannon? Not likely. It would have to be, in my view, that he was, he being Rex, connected to a group in Oak Beach. We don't know if he was or not yet. I wouldn't be surprised if Rex had some connections, but I also think he's in Massapequa, which is Nassau County and west of Oak Beach and Gilgo. They're different counties. You know, the friendships, they tend to sure. be geographic. If it's true that he's only responsible for the Gilgo Four, then where are the other killers and how many are there? And does this arrest negate anything we discussed in Unraveled as it comes to police cover-ups and the political corruption? I, I don't think they'll drop the ball on the others. Now that they've tasted victory and, and given themselves accolades for what they've done, and they deserve those accolades for what they've done now, they're going to seek more. It's kind of interesting that now all of a sudden there'll be a flurry of activity trying to solve the other murders, which they didn't do. But luckily we have other agencies involved. After the break, we're going to take a deep dive into the suspect. Who is Rex Heuerman? I'll talk to a young woman who worked for him, and I'll visit his neighborhood. Where and how did this alleged killer just hide in plain sight? will close with my thoughts on all of it and what I think this arrest means for the future in the story of the Long Island serial killer. Right now we're in the early stages of learning who Rex Heuerman is. What we know is that law enforcement believes him to be the Long Island serial killer. At a minimum, responsible for the victims known as the Gilgo Four, and possibly the other seven victims as well. When I first saw his picture and understood his size, I couldn't help but think about Melissa, Megan, Amber, and Maureen, how small they were, how tiny their statures were, if this guy is in fact guilty as charged, they must have felt so tiny. They didn't stand a chance to overpower him or even defend themselves. I think about how Detective Verone told us that the killer probably put the victims on his shoulder and tossed them onto the bramble on the side of the road. And it wouldn't even be hard for the suspect to do that given how massive he is. When I saw how Rex Heuerman spoke in the now viral YouTube video about his work, his skills as a consultant, bending people and governments to his will. I saw it. I caught a glimpse of it. The hubris. The feeling of invincibility. Maybe he's just a man with a massive ego. Or maybe, as police allege, that ego comes from knowing he got away with murder again and again. The fact this man is an architect makes me think he's meticulous. You can't mess up measurements. Everything has to be just right or everything falls apart. This killer was smart enough to change burner phones after each victim. 
the bodies were meticulously placed, one next to another, at about equal distance from one another as well. Maybe this killer was building something out there. This killer would call and taunt the families of the victims, and Rex Heuermann's search history is a treasure trove of victims' families' names, addresses, photos. Was he an obsessed true crime fan? Or, as detectives believe, keeping close eyes on the families as a form of reliving his crimes. The metaphysical trophy that John Ray talked about. We will find out more about Rex Heuermann as this investigation unfolds and more people step forward to share their stories. For now, I wanted to see where this guy lived, his neighborhood. Where did he allegedly hide? Most of the houses are single story. There are American flags on every lawn. There are SUVs in every driveway. Streets are not wide, but not too narrow, but by all accounts, it's just your ordinary suburb. There are street lights. I mean, it's beautiful, it's clean. I just got to the Massapequa Park neighborhood where Rex lives. And it's such an odd scene down here. There's blockades on every street leading up to where his house is. And there's like a very tense, strange energy in the air. Like a lot of people are kind of tailgating in their front yards. They're playing beer pong and they're drinking. And their responses are chaotic and there's confusion. I mean, they didn't know this guy was literally their neighbor. I'm just glad that if he did it, they caught him and he's not out there hurting anybody. I just feel sorry for his wife and kids. I've known him for years, so, you know, I didn't think anything of it. I was kind of like, you know, I wasn't great friends with him, but I knew of him. I'll give you $1,200 if you get in my car with no cell phone and no ID. I mean, why? who does that? I think the ones that are chopped up definitely had something to do with it. And the Brady Park thing was a little weird. I don't know if you heard about that. That was like... The what? The what thing? The Brady Park with the biker and he was like popping out of the woods on her, asking her a bunch of things, like just... That was just recently though, right? This is July 3rd. People are nice, heavy Long Island accents, just like home. But yeah, I mean, there's definitely this strange energy and I think everybody's still processing it. You know, it's still only been about 48 hours. It was fascinating to see how this neighborhood responded. I'm not sure what I was expecting, but I got there late. It was about midnight. I really expected it to be quiet, to be creepy. What I wasn't expecting was tailgating. There were tents popped up in driveways, people sitting in circles in fold-up chairs. People were drinking. There was music playing. People were playing cornhole and beer pong and ping pong. That said, for all of these people coming together in the front yards of their homes... They were trying to make sense of the news that broke right down the street from them. It appeared to be a communal experience, people coming together to try to understand how this could happen right in their backyards. And while the neighbors didn't know the alleged killer personally, one person I connected with did feel she had a story to share. I spoke with a young woman who worked for Rex Heuermann, the man that law enforcement alleges is responsible for at least three of the murders associated with the Long Island serial killer case. To clarify, and not to confuse, her name is also Alexis. Are you freaked out? I am completely freaked out. I mean, I was in a room alone with this monster. I don't know what to think about it. I never thought in, you know, all my years of reading about this case and watching documentaries and listening to podcasts that I was literally in a room alone with this person. So tell me where you were and how you found out about his arrest. I was actually getting ready for work Friday morning and my husband came to the bottom of the stairs and he yelled up and he was like, Lex, you're never going to believe this. And I go, what? And he's, you know, read I guess News 12 had put it out kind of first, and that's how we heard about it. 
and it was Long Island serial killer, you know, in custody in Massapequa Park. And I live in Massapequa. I was in complete shock. I mean, I was in the same room as this man. I was alone in a room with him. I think I stood there in shock. It was 2016, and Alexis just came out of a relationship and had some medical bills mounting. She needed some extra money. As a budding interior designer and project manager, she was familiar with a software program called CAD, one that's often used by architects like Rex Heuerman. She heard through a friend that Rex Heuerman was looking for someone to help him make the plans for a small apartment renovation. So she took the gig. So tell me about meeting him for the first time. Physically, he was definitely, I mean, I'm of shorter stature and pretty petite. So he was definitely large and then a little intimidating in that regard, just his physical stature. I remember that he had these weird glasses that almost reminded me of Jeffrey Dahmer. It's interesting that she mentions these glasses. The bail hearing document mentions the description Amberlynn Costello's friend used. They referred to them as big oval style 1970s type eyeglasses. That description does kind of match a Jeffrey Dahmer type look. He was kind of off and weird to me. It made me not want to do any more work for him. It just gave me an uneasy feeling in my stomach. I didn't chalk it up to him being dangerous at the time or having any sort of motive. I more just thought like, this is an odd character and I don't want to be around this person. And besides the weird vibe that I got from him, he also took a long time to pay me. So that kind of turned me off majorly. I asked Alexis about his office. How big was it? Was it nice? I mean, it was a messy office. It was definitely older looking. But being in the industry, I wouldn't say that's too out of character. A lot of architects that I've known are kind of, it's all about like function. So I kind of just took him as like this kooky kind of architect guy who maybe didn't have the design sense that I'm used to working in the interior design side of the industry, but it's kind of not out of character for an architect to maybe not always have their finger on the pulse of the latest design. I definitely thought he was a small-time architect. I mean, he's no large celebrity architect by any means. He did smaller renovations, that kind of thing. It didn't seem like he was doing anything grand. As we were talking, Alexis became introspective and emotional. I kind of have been processing it in different ways throughout, you know, the past 24 hours. It first was, you know, like a shock and a joke. And, you know, a lot of people have been telling me like, well, you weren't his type, which I just think is gross. Yes, he preyed on a certain subset of people who choose to do a certain kind of job. But I was also desperate for money. I was in medical debt. You know, I was coming out of a breakup and a move and I needed the cash, you know? So I think about the people who were obviously in a situation where they were doing their job and trying to make money. And I, I feel bad that what they choose to do is somehow terrible, but I chose to do it a different way and I'm safe. Like that's what I'm, I'm trying to process. It's really empathetic of you. I needed the money. You know, I was doing a job that I was like, this is weird, but okay. And I was willing to, you know, at one point I was willing to do it again. It's just because what I was not using my body in that way. I don't, I don't know. It's also the thing that, sorry. Um, 
it's like I, I was right there. You know what I mean? Like, I keep thinking, like, it would have been so easy for him to overpower me. You know, I was in a small New York City office with a bunch of, you know, junk lying around. <laughs> and it would have been very easy. And that's why these stories hit so close to home. When monsters hide in plain sight, hundreds of people have everyday interactions with them. And the idea that evil could be present in our lives so closely and us not even realize it or know it, it's very unsettling. When I think back to the roller coaster of the last 48 to 72 hours, I come back to John Ray calling this a bittersweet victory. Previous episodes detailed the corruption of James Burke, the disgraced Suffolk County Chief of Police, and Thomas Spoda, convicted former Suffolk County District Attorney. I can't help but wonder how much sooner we would have had answers if they'd done their job, if they'd worked with the FBI, if they'd focused resources on solving this crime rather than replacing their lead detectives. The answers were there, it took the task force six weeks to identify their main suspect. Six weeks. Then they spent 16 months building a case and watching him. As we wrap things up, there's something I'd really like to say to the current investigative team, and that is, thank you. When the current DA, Ray Tierney, and Suffolk County Police Commissioner Rodney Harrison took their oath of offices, they promised the public that this case would be a priority, but it followed with mostly more radio silence. What we know now is that behind the scenes, these two men were not silent and took a very different approach than past administrations. Here's District Attorney Ray Tierney. When I took office in January of 2022, I made Gilgo a priority. I met with the victim's families and I told them that we were going to handle this case differently. We were going to form a task force and we were going to use the grand jury, the power of the grand jury to reach a determination in this case. Because the grand jury has two things. It has power. It has reach. You could obtain documents. You could interview witnesses. But the other thing that the grand jury has no one knows what you do when you operate a grand jury proceeding. And we knew that when we were investigating this case and it, when we dealt with the media or whatever it was we were doing, we were playing before a party of one because we knew the person responsible for these murders would be looking at us. We maintained the integrity of the investigation. Most importantly of all, we maintained the secrecy of that investigation. As true crime investigative reporters or true crime fans, we want all the info right away. We always do. But that's not how cases are built. And this suspect is alive and deserves his day in court. As such, law enforcement did right by withholding information from the press, especially since they know he was watching. Think about it. February of 2022, the task force is formed. March 14th of 2022, they identify the suspect and start tracking his online activity. April 12th, 2022, law enforcement releases the hotel video from the night of Megan Waterman's disappearance. Here's a clip from Suffolk County Police Commissioner Rodney Harrison's press conference. We have released video surveillance footage and photos of the last time one of our victims was seen prior to her death. Our victim, Megan Waterman, was wearing a yellow sweater and is shown both arriving and leaving the hotel. Based on what we know right now, we believe she did leave the hotel that night to meet her killer. We are doubling the reward for information that may lead to the arrest and conviction in the Gilgo Beach homicide investigation from $25,000 to $50,000. We hope that anyone who may have been in the area that night will reach out to our Crime Stoppers hotline. We now know that that entire press conference was indeed playing for a party of one. 
not some faceless, nameless suspect, but Rex Huerman, the man they had already identified. What they were doing was waiting to see how he would respond to this information. What would his internet activity tell them? Hopefully, we'll get to find out at trial what it is they witnessed. As they stated numerous times, for law enforcement, this investigation is not over. There is a treasure trove of evidence to comb through, stemming from the search warrants executed with his arrest. The case of Maureen Brainerd Barnes needs further investigation before charges can be filed. And maybe this isn't as clear-cut as one Long Island serial killer. Remember, there are many more victims that were found along Gilgo Beach that also deserve answers. And for them, and for all of their families, we press on. Stay tuned to this Unraveled feed for future developments on this case and see where our continued investigation leads us. If you know Rex Huerman, or if you would like to contribute to our story in a different way, please send an email to us at unraveledtips at gmail.com or contact me on Instagram at Alexis Linkletter. Unraveled is produced by Joke Productions for ID. The executive producers and writers of this podcast are Joke Finsyun, Biagio Messina, and myself, Alexis Linkletter. Executive producer for ID, Thomas Cutler. Our editor is Caitlin Cleveland. The music and score that you have heard in this podcast is by Biagio Messina. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. It helps a lot when you subscribe, rate, and review the podcasts that you enjoy listening to. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.